Welcome back to Path to Glory, the Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. My name is Aman Kusro, and I'm joined by my co-host, Zach Koshetta. How's it going? It's going great. Change is upon us. Yes, change is indeed upon us. Today's a day of change, actually, because today is my birthday, so I changed ages. Well, happy birthday. Thanks. Well, in this episode, we are going to talk about Ephilim's Pandemonium, which is one of the new warbands in the Weird Hollow box. But before we do that, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting us. If you're interested in supporting the podcast monetarily, please check it out at patreon.com slash path of glory. It's been, you know, I think having patrons is awesome because it really helps do a lot of the stuff that we want to do. Obviously, we try to help support Zach by getting him some product which we are able to pay for his weird hollow, which is exciting, but also like just get, you try to improve, you know, mic and, and, and other things. I mean, the mic I currently use was, was bought due to Patreon money. So thank you so much. And so maybe we can upgrade Zach's stuff as well in the future, but uh, yeah. So let's jump into Ephilim's Pandemonium from a miniatures perspective. Like, man, I think they look super cool, dude. Like I think everyone loves a good Zinch warband. Yeah. They, there's a, I mean, I personally am just such a sucker for seeing she got a bunch of demons. I got a, both a demon and a mortals war cry war band over there. They're like my favorite demon faction for, for GW. I'm a big, like Lovecraftian horror type of fan. So anything that's like, you know, weird, non-Euclidean, you know, strange geometries and strange biologies, it just does it for me. And these guys take every box. Yeah. I feel like Games Workshop has done a really good job of more of that horror aspect at least bringing it to life in miniature form. I think in the past, maybe the demon and chaos stuff looked a little cartoony. Yeah. And then it just kind of looked like they were going for something, but it was kind of a miss or maybe over the top. But lately, I feel like, especially the underworld stuff, it's the right amount of creepy. Yeah, it's like, it's serious enough to kind of be, you know, it, it doesn't look goofy, but it also doesn't look like super grim darky it just it looks interesting and it looks really unique in a lot of ways like they've done it really well for a lot of different gods i mean a lot of the slanesh stuff was mortals when they did that big update of hidden knights of slanesh they got the new keeper of secrets but otherwise i think it was all mortal units but even those designs were just like so unique and interesting and and like really you know beautiful yet violent in that way that you want zinch to be in the setting so i'm I, I think they're knocking it out of the park with chaos in modern times. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think, especially because the early days of Underworlds, the chaos warbands were, they had something to be left desired. And while the miniatures always looked awesome, mm-hmm. I think the warbands holistically never performed to the, the level that people wanted them to perform to, at least consistently. I think it's very hard not to make comparisons to Eyes of the Nine, which I think, looking back, I still think about them quite fondly. They were a warband that was and still are probably much maligned, but they certainly had their moments. I think there were a couple people out there online and in person who made them function mm-hmm. and who made them work. And so it's nice to be able to hopefully see Zinch be a little bit more ubiquitous or at least more popular for the time being, given some of the excitement surrounding this box and the warband. Yeah. And I mean, I think the comparison is very reasonable. I mean, you have a wizard leader you've got some demons he 
the the leader is kind of your cannon that wants to sit there and shoot, as we'll kind of see in a little bit. It's not a one to one comparison, but there there's some parallels to draw. And eyes, you're right. Eyes are eyes were and are much maligned. They've always been kind of the butt of balance power level discussions, kind of the butt of the joke there. But if nothing else, they were very interesting design. Actually, I, th- I think Nightfall was full of really interesting designs, especially at the time where they were still kind of figuring out warband design. But Eyes of the Nine, they had like summoning and they had like a really solid melee fighter, but they also had wizards and, you know, it didn't really pan out, but you could tell they were trying new and interesting things. And I think that it was very cool. And I think they're doing the same thing here with the pandemonium and hopefully it'll just pan out a little bit more powerfully. Completely agree. I mean, I think honestly, I'm excited for what this warband seems to offer. I think it's going to hit a lot of the notes people want, especially for people who like to think. I do feel like there is this desire to play these warbands that force you to make hard choices in meaningful ways. And I think this warband, it really elegantly creates that situation for lack of a better term, right? Like you're going to have to pre-plan and think and think and think. But if you can nail all of it and you can think correctly, you're going to do really well with this warband. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll see as we go through the cards, it's going to be a very different play style. We just looked at Storm Coven in our last episode and they are, you know, they're also thinking person's warband just due to how the inspiration mechanic works, but they are still very aggro. I think Ephilim's Pandemonium is going to be a thinking person's warband and they will not be, well, I mean, you can't play them hyper aggressive, but it's not kind of a requirement for how they work. So I think as we go through, we'll kind of get a feel as we bounce ideas off of each other as to how we expect these guys to play. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's get into it, Zach. And we're going to start with the lore. I think the lore is actually very exciting. And I know that not everyone, especially not all of our listeners, do appreciate the story behind our worlds, but it's nice to see that you and I can at least enjoy that together. So if you're not interested in the story, you can probably skip the next two minutes. But anyways, I'm going to read the excerpt from the rule book. The Silver Towers of Zinch are shards of raw insanity. The interior of these bizarre fortresses crawl with demon spawn plucked from the Lord of Flux's imagination. To try and take inventory of such a menagerie would be madness. Yet this is the goal of Ephilim, the unknowable. Not even fellow servants of the Great Manipulator can tell whether the genderless Ephilim was formerly mortal or has always been a shard of zinch. What is undeniable is that they are obsessed with the study and cataloging of demons. Once a servant of the gaunt summoner, known as the Eater of Tomes, Ephilim stalked the twisting corridors of their master's tower, capturing wayward demons within portal prisons of raw sorcery. These entities were then sealed within enchanted trick mirrors, where they were twisted into new and even more unnatural forms. All this was done to satisfy Ephilim's obsession with discovering every possible permutation of the demonic, a fruitless task, for Zinch's warped creativity knows no bounds. When the Eater of Tomes and his tower were brought down in Camon by the Seraphon, Ephilim escaped through a portal hastily scrawled into reality by their shimmering quill, itself plucked from some feathered demon spawn. The infernal sorcerer took with them only the book that recorded their maniacal studies, 
as well as a so-called pandemonium, of these aberrations closest to hand. Apatrax, known as the Stairfish, is a strange, piscine entity who uses her lone, pulsating eye to hypnotize mortals, luring them into a range of her shredding fangs. Next is the mischievous Kindlefinger, who delights in using his writhing arms to hurl gouts of iridescent flame at anything he takes a dislike to. The hound-like Spawn Maw is the most bestial of Ephilim's minions, capable of splitting her body almost in half to swallow much larger foes in one bite. Alone of the pandemonium, the avian Flame Spooler bears true intellect. With long, clever feet, he spins balls of dripping weird fire from the air, using them as projectiles or oracular scry orbs to glean impressions of the future. Indeed, it was he who alerted Ephilim to the Silver Tower's imminent destruction. As with all Zinch's cunning demons, Flame Swooler uses these glimpsed strands of casualty to try and further his own agendas. But he is sufficiently wary of Ephilim's skill in demon breaking that he serves at the unknowable's behest for now. Through fate's capricious artifice, Ephilim's portal led them from the dying silver tower into the weird hollow, deep below the Narwood. In this development, the unknowable sees the godly hand of Zinch at work. The weird hollow is a natural nexus of sorcery, further inundated by Azerite energies following the crash landing of the Seraphon. By twisting these volatile forces with esoteric and ruinous lore, and further corrupting the waves of magic wretched up from the depths of Gur, Flum intends to flood the weird hollow with such transmorgifying power that new breeds of demons by the hundreds will surely burst into unholy being. That this will render Ephilim's task of infernal classification all the more impossible is of no concern. The chance to turn the Narwood into a cauldron of creation for Zinch's children is well worth it. That was a, that was a mouthful, but it's really interesting lore. I mean, you know, th- we've seen silver, silver Towers have kind of been a staple of Warhammer lore, both 40k and AOS for a really long time. These kind of massive floating, shifting buildings of Zinch that house demons and insane wizards and all sorts of things. The first Warhammer quest box, when they brought that back, was based off of it. And it's just such a cool setting because it's like, you know, it, it, it is the dungeon of madness, you know, kind of go, hearkening back to that Lovecraftian horror aesthetic. And so interesting here that Ephilim is, you know, despite the looks is not like a gaunt summoner or a gaunt summoner training or anything. They served under a gaunt summoner and they kind of were this, this purely obsessed being that wanted to learn about demons. And, you know, it's something that's not necessarily evil. I love this depiction of chaos as just like an aspect of their God, but not just like some slavering you know, war chief that wants to kill everybody, but just kind of like, you know, somebody who's obsessed with demons, somebody who's obsessed with, you know, change and, you know, molding the world more to their vision, which is pretty evil, but, you know, isn't, isn't the mustache twirling, hand wringing type of evil that sometimes you get with like corn or, you know, undivided like Archaean style chaos. So this is cool. I love this. I love that we get a little description of each of the demons and those descriptions really line up much like it did with the Storm Coven with the fighter cards we're going to look at in a second. Yeah. But before we do that, I, I did want a chance to comment on that as well. 
What I enjoy about chaos and modern chaos, I think in particular, is that Games Workshop has done a great job of maybe not necessarily making chaos evil, right? I think inherently maybe they're the bad guys or whatever, but I think objectively you could call Sigmar a bad guy as well. But I think what's interesting is that Ephilim isn't necessarily following an agenda. I think they are, as any maybe someone who like follows of excess is, I think with Zinch, it's wanting to know everything, right? Knowledge, this this ever yearning, never ending sense of wanting to learn for better, or for worse. And so with Ephilim, it's just how many kinds of demons are there? Can I make them all? Can I catalog them all? It's almost like they're playing Pokemon, right? Got to catch them all. <laughs> it's really yeah. funny and try to study these these demons and their evolutions and their changes. And so I can appreciate that from a learning perspective, despite the fact that obviously you take it too far, it can lead to some strange things and maybe growing an extra set of arms. But another thing I wanted to comment on was the fact that I do want to applaud GW for adding more inclusion into the game. I think, you know, whatever your thoughts are on whatever, I think the fact that this is an androgynous creature is, is exciting because there are going to be people out there who maybe can relate to that. And as someone who has appreciated the increasing levels of diversity in Warhammer, I can appreciate that. And I think that's something to be celebrated, especially in this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see non-binary characters. They do kind of like occasionally you'll see a character on another card or another warband referred to as them, but I like it as kind of explicitly called out here. They're like, no, you know, this is intentional. It's not just a wording choice. You know, our, the leader of this warband is non-binary and it's, it's not like a, you know, the, the way that they've done it is not like, Hey, look at us. This is, we're, we're inclusive. It's just like, no, it just makes sense for the character. So that's the way the character is. And I think that's really well done. It's. Like you said, it's great for diversity, and I like seeing inclusion in the games. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know. I don't know if it matters what your thoughts are one way or the other. Like, certainly, I don't really have strong thoughts one way or the other. I just think it's cool to see. You know, I would love to see more Indian people in Warhammer, right? So Yeah. Non-binary people exist, and they want to be represented. I mean, it doesn't really matter what people's thoughts on that are. They're NBs are people, too. So, yeah, it's cool. That's right. So, with that being said, Zach, let's jump mm. into the Warband itself. So, yes. first of all, give a big shout out to GW for sending us this preview copy in advance. And it's really exciting because this allows us to help generate hype and maybe help people who are interested in playing the Warband in figuring out how to do. One of my favorite aspects of the new plot card system is that Warbands can now come with plot cards. And so we've seen that in the past. And like with Kagras, they had the desecration mechanic. It wasn't called a plot card at the time, but it now is. And then with Mad Mob now, they come with their own plot card because primacy only exists for them. It's no longer a universal rule. So I like when they add an additional layer of complexity and thought into a warband, especially when coupled with maybe additional plot cards that could be in the game, because it's going to make that matchup, that experience very unique. And Ephilim's Pandemonium certainly does come with a plot card. Mm. Now, this is a doozy, and I'm going to read through this. And Zach, I want you to, to give me your thoughts, because I'm going to be honest, I'm pretty sure you've kind of gone through over this a couple times, more than I have. Whereas A few uh, times, yeah. 
Yeah, I know that I know that this is going to speak to you a lot more than maybe it may speak to me. That's not to say that I don't find it very fascinating. I do, but you know, I just know that this is the kind of stuff that makes your brain go burr. Oh yeah. This is this is my jam right here. So yeah, go ahead and read through it and then we'll chat about it afterwards. Friendly fighters with the changer keyword cannot be given attack action upgrades. At the start of the round, after the roll-off to see who takes the first activation, but before the reaction step, play through the following change sequence. If two or more players have this plot card, the player that is taking the first activation plays through their change sequence, followed by the player to their left, and so on. Reactions cannot be made during the change sequence. Number one, choose one friendly changer. Inspire the chosen changer. You can choose an inspired changer. Two. Choose one friendly changer that has not been chosen this round. Stagger the chosen changer. Three, choose one friendly changer that has not been chosen this round. Give the chosen, give the chosen changer one guard token. Four, choose one friendly changer that has not been chosen this round. Push the chosen changer one hex. When there are no friendly changers that can be chosen, the change sequence immediately ends. Holy crap. That's a lot. <laughs> and that's very specific. What are your first thoughts? I like the specificity. You know, we often deal with online, especially people nitpicking wording on cards. I do it all the time on this podcast and I will definitely be doing it for some cards in this set, but they, I think they've done a really good job of making it verbose here. Yes, it is a little wordy. It's a little long, but you know exactly what's going to happen. And once you understand this se sequence, it actually makes a lot of sense. Basically, what's going on is, other than your leader, the four other fighters have the changer keyword. The first part of this just says they're basically like geese, you can't give them weapons. Okay, that makes sense. The rest of it is saying that every round, if you you go through this sequence and for however many changers you have around, uh, and you have to do it in this order. So you're always going to inspire a changer. And then if there's two alive, the next one gets staggered. And then if there's three alive, the next one gets a guard token. And then if there's all four of them are still alive, the last one gets pushed one hex. So a sidestep. It's really interesting because the Inspire, like, we're, we're going to see the Inspired sides. And you, I think you're going to get a feel of, like, which one you want to Inspire early. Depends on the situation. Depends on the board setup. Depends on what's happened in the last couple rounds. So that's usually a pretty quick choice. But then it kind of forces you into an immediate negative. You inspire, which is strong, and then you have to stagger, which is downside. One of your guys is going to be, have a big target on their head. Maybe that's one you hide in the back. Maybe that's one you put up front that's going to die anyway, because got one wound left and who cares if it's staggered? It's just going to die to the next tech anyway. Give a fighter a guard token. There's a lot that goes into that. Maybe do that on a fighter that's on an objective. So, and then the sidestep will usually only be done in the first round. I don't know how often you're going to get to round two or three with all four of these little guys still alive. We'll kind of see why in a second. But yeah, it kind of lets you, each round's going to feel a little unique because who's inspired, who's got the negative, who has the guard. It's going to be up to you to set that up. And your opponent also has to think around it as well. Maybe they move up next to one of your changers with the idea that they're going to kill it next turn but there's three alive and you give that one a guard token and now it's very hard to kill. Or you inspire it and now it gets an extra defense dice. Or 
you know, all four of them are alive and you get to push it away, you know, prevent your opponent from hitting it. There, there's a lot of thought that goes into this, and this is before each round. So I think that much like Storm Coven, it, it's fun to draw the parallels because you could tell they were designed at the same time. Both of them require you to think your round through very carefully because with Storm Coven, you have to think about activation order and inspiration. With Pandemonium, you have to think about, okay, how do I want my changers to be set up this round? And how do I want them to be set up next round? Who do I want to inspire this round? Because then next round, I'm going to inspire somebody else. So it's a very, very cool mechanic, and it's going to take you a whole lot of games to master it. Well said. I think for me, what I really like about this is that you can tell the designers really wanted to make sure that there was a benefit for all of this happening. Because if you look at it, the first step, and you can't change the step order, right? You have to follow one through four is that the first thing you do is worst case scenario, you got to inspire somebody. But what's cool is that maybe you're in a situation where you don't want to inspire another fighter, or maybe you rather give another fighter who's uninspired a guard token, then you can just choose that same fighter. So there's a little redundancy built into it. It's very flexible in that sense. The stagger does suck a little bit. I guess it's a little unfortunate, but ultimately like just stagger, maybe a changer that's in the back. Maybe they're on an objective. Maybe they're not. Now, there is a double-edged sword in that because if they are staggered holding an objective, that means they can't delve. Now, whether you would like to or want to delve or not is another issue entirely, but it's something you do have to take into consideration. Obviously, then you get to the next step, which is guard, right? Which is awesome. Guard is great. Maybe you want to throw that on a fighter who is maybe on one dodge and increase their survivability dramatically, so on and so forth. And then lastly, push, right? This is the strongest, one of the strongest abilities in the game. Sidestep is ubiquitous for a reason but again it's the fourth one right you're only ever going to get it maybe once or twice a game but you have to make it impactful and i really like how this plot card really doesn't really leave any room for interpretation it's there it exists you follow it and you move on yeah and yeah i i I just think it's great I, i agree with that i i think my look from this is sometimes you feel like a mechanic slips through. It's like, ooh, did they, you know, how much was this play tested? That seems either like really strong or really weak. It it doesn't feel like it was put through its paces too many times. I think the wording on this and how specific it is and just from a cursory view of how it looks like it's going to play, it looks like this is something that has been play tested a lot and they have looked through it and they have thought through it and they're like, we know how this is going to pan out and we know the power level of something like this, which I love. I think it shows that there's great dedication to the, the design of this game still. Absolutely. Well, with that, we're going to jump into covering the rest of the cards, including the fighter cards, objectives, and gambits and mm-hmm. upgrades. Keep in mind that when evaluating every single card moving forward, we are going to keep this plot card in mind. So if you're following along with your cards, just keep that to the side. But if you're really, if you're listening to this probably before release, try to keep that consideration in mind. Again, the order is Inspire, Stagger, Guard, Push. So we're going to start with Ephilim the Unknowable. They are a leader. That is a level one wizard. Obviously, Grand Alliance Chaos. Three move, two dodge, four wounds. They have a warp staff, which is range two, two smash, two damage. And a fiery change bolt ranged attack. That is a whopping range four. It hits on the folk, but it is beholden to the magic level, and it deals two damage. 
So because they are a level one wizard, it will, they can only roll one focus when making that attack action. They inspire when two or more surviving friendly fighters are inspired, and they have the Power Leech ability. Plus one wizard level while this fighter is within three hexes of two or more friendly change. When Ephilim inspires, a couple things change. First of all, the Warp Staff goes to three smash, but stays at two damage. And they gain the reaction called Warp Gorge. After a friendly changer is taken out of action, draw one power card. In addition to this, they retain the leader trait and they go to wizard level two, which is really interesting to think about because Power Leech can allow them to hit wizard level three on their inspired side. Zach, what are your thoughts on Ephilim? A really solid start. I mean, right off the crack, you've got all the good stuff to dodge four wounds. It's what you want. Range two, two damage attack. That's great. Range four, two damage attack. I mean, early on when you're uninspired, you probably will always be within three hexes of two or more friendly changers. So even though they are not to wizard level two on their front side, they basically are for all intents and purposes. The two or more surviving friendly fighters are inspired. Inspiration effect is really interesting. Again, keep in the keep in mind the plot cycle of change mechanic. So maybe your first inclination is to inspire a fighter that's going to be forward and get use out of their aggressive side of their aggressive part of their inspired side. But with this in mind, maybe you want to inspire a fighter that's going to stay safe on round one and then round two, inspire another fighter and basically auto inspire Ephilim on round two. But you do miss out on some early aggression. So there's like this weird balancing act for inspiration versus aggressive power versus defensive power. And I think kind of playing around that is going to be really good. And then obviously the inspired side is bonkers. I mean, both attacks are really good. You get to draw when fighters die, which is usually a plot, usually a power card or like a, or like an upgrade or something like, and, and you can potentially be level three. They're, they're crazy good on the inspired side. So yeah. Excellent fighter as the leader. Yeah, I think the four wounds to dodge is like the new staple chaos leader stat. And it's certainly something that is very valuable, especially early on. And I really find these magic-centric warbands interesting, especially like with the comparisons to Eyes of the Nine, is that you need this fighter to make an impact on the battlefield. And similarly to, I feel like a lot of mono-god chaos warbands the inspiration is a bit difficult right so you're getting some front-loaded stats which make ephilim candidly a very great fighter the two smash range two two damage is great potentially you know two damage at range four which is incredible at a wizard level two as long as you've positioned your fighters correctly is great the two or more surviving friendly fighters again i think zach you made a really good point about you know do you it's a risk versus reward thing if you inspire one of your more aggressive fighters or maybe someone who one of your changers who's closer to the enemy, you have you run the risk of losing that fighter. Whereas inspiring someone in the back line is probably more important for you if your goal is to get Ephilim inspired as fast as possible. Now, when Ephilim inspires, again, you're right, they become bonker. Three smash, range two, two damage is, is like Drepper levels of accuracy, right? You're just missing the reroll. The change bolt can be very accurate as well, potentially rolling three focus at range four, dealing two damage. And again, yes, I agree. Warp Gorge is amazing. This is an upgrade in the past. And if this was an upgrade in the universal pool, 
you'd probably take it. If it read after a friendly minion or a friendly fighter is taken out of action, draw one power card. That's incredible, right? And so you get to do that. And over the course of the game, you're potentially drawing four more cards if FLM is last person standing. So I really like this fighter. I think they've got all the strokes you need to run a warband as such. A lot of character, a lot of flavor. They are power in their own right. But again, you have this reliance on the changers, which I think is evident through the plot card. So I'm curious to see how nuts FLM can get with correct changer support and positioning. Now, the next fighter is the Spawn Maw. Keyword Zinch, keyword Changer. A movement of five. One dodge, three wounds. Mouth Trap is a range one, three fury, two damage attack. With the keyword Chomp, plus one damage if the target is large. They also have the Warp Blaze ability. This is a magical attack action denoted by the magic sign in front of Warp Blaze. It is a range three, two focus, one damage attack. The Spawn Maw inspires when each other surviving friendly fighter is inspired, and they go to two dodge on their inspired side. Chomp goes to three smash, Warp Blaze goes to three focus, and yeah, Chomp stays the same. Zach, what are your thoughts on our first changer? Move five with a reasonable attack is pretty good against other small warbands like activation one, move five, charge up and hit somebody with a very accurate two damage attack can be really good against like minion warbands and stuff. One dodge is bad. Three wounds is not bad. If you're like a swarmy warband, I mean, three wounds survives a lot of stuff, especially in rivals and nemesis, but two dodge is better. So, you know. Here's a good question of your first inspiration. I mean, as a first inspiration, this can be a very aggressive card. Getting to the two dodge, getting to three smash, getting to... I mean, the warp blaze isn't great because it's just one damage, but hey, it is a extremely reliable thing when it's inspired. The chomp being three damage against large targets is kind of cute. It's kind of like a mini version of who's the... Wallop. Wallop Skull. Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of a mini version of that because wallops against four wounds is against five plus but still quite good i mean there are a lot of large fighters out there yeah it, it's a good first show spawn law is not a complex fighter it wants to run forward and bite things or at least stand still and deal some ping damage but yeah very straightforward one but a, a solid first showing i agree i think certainly spawn law is a fighter that you would probably want to inspire early if only because the aggression is very tempting but I think that could be a trap. Keep in mind, though, that you might not necessarily want to be super aggressive with Spawn Maw and just inspire some for the sake of being on two dodge. Because again, that dramatically increases their survivability. And I like the fact that Spawn Maw has three wounds because I think it's a she. That's how it was described in the lore. And she is not going to get insta-gipped by most attacks in the game, right? Because most attacks are two damage. So I like that. Warp Blaze, I could really care less for honestly i think the mouth trap is the most interesting piece i do agree that it's a great way to maybe finish a fighter off when she is inspired but overall i agree spawn ma is, is not bad and i think spawn ma could be a great fighter again to go with step one inspire step two go on guard or even step or step three go on guard and step four push staggering them though probably doesn't seem like the best move given the fact that this is probably one of your fighters that might be closer to the front but again, I don't know if it matters because they have a movement of five, so they can maybe just go wherever they need to go. Yeah, there's also the idea that like you could 
if you're facing an elite warband, especially something with a large fighter off the bat, like a crushes or a black powder or something like that, something that has five wounds, you could just stagger spawn maw and charge it in round one. And if you hit three damage on a five wound fighter in your first activation, doesn't matter if spawn maw dies with, you know, being one dodge and staggered immediately afterwards, like you did three damage to their large fighter. Spawn Maw has paid dividends already because now that large fighter is probably not going to want to come into your territory. We have a bunch of other really accurate two damage attacks. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's some planning and we'll, we'll look at the other fighters and see how that cycle is going to go for them. Yeah. I'd love to discuss maybe like an order after we go over the fighters or maybe at the end of this and the end of the podcast. But last thing I want to say on Spawn Maw is absolutely correct. They don't necessarily have to be a good inspired or the inspire target, given the fact that three fury for two damage is very accurate regardless. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think maybe charging a large fighter off the jump certainly can pay dividends, just maybe not Hrothgorn, because then the whole warband will inspire, right? right? Oh yeah, that's, that is scary. Forgot about that. Very scary. But speaking about looking scary, we've got Kindlefinger. Next fighter, Zinch, change your keywords, a movement of three, two dodge, two wounds. Warp Flames is a magical attack action. Range three, two focus, one damage. It has the spurting Warp Fingers ability, so plus one damage if the target is adjacent. And in general, this fighter has an ability called Capering Fiend. Minus one damage to a minimum of one from attack actions that target this fighter. Now, Kindle Finger inspires just like the Spawn Maw. Each other surviving friendly fighter is inspired. When Kindle Finger is inspired, they go to channels on their Warp Flames attack, which makes them significantly more accurate. But that's really the only change. Zach, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Kindle Finger doesn't get a whole lot inspired. I mean, the accuracy is great, but two focuses, two hammers, it's fine. It's nothing to sneeze at already. The main thing to note here is just two dodge with minus one damage off the bat. I mean, two wounds is not great, but it's effectively three wounds. And if you have any sort of healing effect or plus wound effect, that only gets better. It seems really weird to think about putting a great fortitude on Kindle finger over your leader or over one of the other fighters. But like, hey, if your opponent is mostly two damage attacks, putting plus one wound on Kindle finger is actually pretty solid because it effectively turns into a six wound fighter against two damage attacks. So yeah, that's, it's cool. And it's one that I don't think, you know, kind of in the grand scheme of things needs to be inspired to do its thing early on. And if you do want to inspire it, it can sit back and shoot really accurately or even run forward and shoot really accurately to get that plus one damage. So yeah, Kindle finger is an interesting little piece. Yes. Very interesting. And I like the fact that they've purposefully not given it much to benefit from the Inspire perspective so that if you're a newer player to this game, it can help you make that decision, right? Why choose this fighter to Inspire when it doesn't really gain much? But that could be a lesson that a player could learn the hard way as well over the course of their time with the Warband. I actually think Kindlefinger could probably be someone who is your early stagger choice, if only because they're a ranged fighter, you probably want to keep them in the back anyways. And so you can just stagger them with dismissing the concern that they could maybe get charged very early. But I also think this is a great candidate for a guard token. And then obviously pushing someone is great regardless. So I like Kindlefinger. I think the biggest thing Kindlefinger has going for it is that you have that minus one damage to a minimum of one from 
any and all attack actions. There's no range limit on this, right? Range three, range four, range two, adjacent. They're reducing that damage, which should allow them to tank more than one hit in general, especially with a wound upgrade, which can be really interesting. I think fighters that can throw off your opponent's math is nice and change up their game plan. And Kindlefinger could honestly be someone you throw up in the front if you're fighting a large, like a maybe a warband with a lot of low damage attacks. Throw him on guard. Watch him do his thing. That could be fun too. Yeah, I think there's a lot to consider from a defensive standpoint, which is weird talking about a two wound fighter, but uh, there it is. It's like Glissette. A little bit, yeah. Not the same, but in, in a very similar idea, yeah. Yeah, what I find interesting is that all of these changers are good candidates for all four steps, right? Which mm -hmm. again is interesting. Obviously, some are better than others in certain num numerical order, but the options are quite endless, which is, I guess, the pandemonium of it all. Mm hmm. Lots of change going on. Praise Zinch. Indeed. Well, we are going to move on to our next fighter, the Flame Spooler. Zinch, changer, keywords, a movement of four, one dodge, three wounds. They have a magical attack action called Flame Splash. It is range three, two focus, one damage, with the special ability Warp Splash attached to it. Reaction. After the deal damage step of this attack action, Give each fighter within one hex of the target one warping counter. At the start of a round, deal one damage to each fighter with one or more warping counters. Then remove that fighter's warping counters. Now, Flame Spooler inspires, just like everyone else, when each other friendly fighter is inspired. When Flame Spooler is inspired, they go to two dodge. Their attack action also goes to two channel. They retain the warp splash ability what do you think zach it's a super interesting piece i mean warp splash is like effectively delayed plus one damage it's like it basically makes a range attack two damage which is good i mean on a minion having a range three two damage attack that is two dice off the crack is not bad it's pretty good and then there's kind of that splash aspect of warp splash where it's each fighter within one warp encounter so against something like Exiled Dead, against something like maybe Thorns of the Briar Queen or Loon Court, you know, these high model count warbands, you could be spreading out just a lot of damage. So yeah, that's really cool. I mean, this one doesn't excite me as much because it's really just the warp splash that's going on. The attack is otherwise fine. Three wounds on two dodge inspired is a reasonable defense. Move four is pretty nice, but I think a lot of times Flame Schoolers just going to want to like move into position and try to warp splash people from a range and try to get those tokens out. I agree. Flame Spooler is certainly a fighter that I think, again, going back to the plot card benefits from most of them, right? Aside from the stagger, which I think the stagger is intentional. It is a negative choice that you have to make in order to benefit from the rest. So, you know, inspire him early. Great. To dodge. Put him on guard. Great. Helps his survivability a little bit. I think what the most interesting thing about it, though, is the warp splash attack. And I really like that he is the fighter that maybe is one that you don't really care for in most games. Maybe he is your sacrificial lamp. Maybe he is someone who you try to bait the enemy with. But in some matchups, he might be very well your MVP. And you've named some of the matchups where that might be relevant, you know, horde matchups and things like that. Or fighters who like to clump up, like, you know, warbands that like assists 
So I'm trying to think of a warband that maybe really likes that, but you can think about like hex hunters where they, yeah, like, that's the, true. The dogs like to clump up. So maybe like mm-hmm. bridge of charges and then one of the dogs come in. Yeah. That's a good one. Even soul rage, something like that. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. And it's cool because then what happens is you deal one damage to one fighter. And then at the very least that fighter that you attacked and damaged is going to potentially take another damage because they're within one of themselves. But if you hit in that situation where there's a dog or two dogs or a bunch of zombies, that ping damage starts to stack. And it's really hard not to think about Daring Delvers when thinking about rivals decks that work really well with this warband, especially because if you can get Flame Spooler online early, especially just starting the game, inspiring him, making a wild charge and having a very accurate attack that can just lay out a lot of damage potentially, it's very interesting to think about, especially because some of the newer boards do offer a lot of starting positions that are next to one another. Yeah, and the fact that this is three hex, I mean, it's a seven hex threat range. It's just really, really scary. I mean, and potentially further, like you shoot somebody seven hexes away, there's somebody behind them, you put a warp splash token on them, like you said, daring Delphers. Now they've got a token, they're going to take damage next round, but then you could also hit them with quick roots. So just for being near your target there, now out two wounds so like yeah there's a lot of interesting play here i agree yeah very excited at the high games in terms of flame spooler like when they hit those upper end of games where they just have fantastic dice and and matchups very excited to see those highs but then i imagine there'll be a ton of lows as well but that's okay because they're just at the end of the day demon spawn last but certainly not the least we have Apatrax, the Stairfish, Zinch, Changer keywords, and the Flying Trait. She is a range, she is a three move, one dodge, two wound fighter. Flesh Warping Appendages is a range one, two smash, two damage attack with the Lamprey. Special rule, which plus one damage if this fighter has no move or charge tokens. They have the Hypnotize ability. After the last power step in a round, choose one enemy fighter. Push the chosen fighter up to two hexes. After that push, the chosen fighter must be adjacent to this fight. And she inspires when each other friendly fighter is inspired, like everyone else. And when she doesn't inspire, she goes to two dodge. Her flesh warping appendages attack goes to three fury. And everything else pretty much stays the same. Zach, this is probably one of the most interesting characters we've seen in a long, long time. What are your thoughts? It's probably one of the best control pieces in the game and your opponent is going to have to think about it all game long especially if they are a positional type of deck a hold objective deck a fearsome fortress deck that wants to be in the middle anybody that wants to hold a token or like stand in a very specific spot is going to hate this and try to kill it immediately luckily for them it is probably your squishiest card it is two wounds but unlike kindle finger does have the reduced damage I think there's a good chance you want to, Apatrex might often be your first Inspire just to get the double dodge. I think the Lamprey thing is rarely going, it's hard to evaluate Lamprey because plus one damage if this fighter has no move or charge tokens. I get the idea is you use Hypnotize at the end of the round, you go first the next round, you use Flush Warping Appendages, now you have a two smash, three damage attack or three fury, three damage attack if Inspired. At, as your first action because they're adjacent. It just seems really hard to set up and really depends on dice. When it goes off, it's going to feel really, really good. 
and a lot of games, it's just not going to happen. But yeah, hypnotize is the clear thing here. I think a lot of times you're just going to put Epitrax in a position that's like, it's close enough to use hypnotize powerfully, but it's far enough away to be safe. You also have fly, you could hide it behind a wall or something. And your opponent just has to think about hypnotize the entire round until it dies. Unless they're like hyper aggro and then they don't really care about being pushed around. Maybe, maybe you pull it out of position and keep your leader safe or something. Like there's, there's just so much to consider with this is, I'm trying to remember the name of the card. There's a, it, it reminds me of the ploy card from Mournflight, Lady Harrow's Mournflight. That is a pull to pull an enemy to hexes closer. And that card is really, really powerful. And you potentially get to do it three times per game on the card. That's really good. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a difficult piece to use. But when you do use it, it's going to win you games. So, yeah, a cool piece. Very cool piece. I agree. I think there's a lot that you said that I'd like to unpack. I think primarily... I agree. Apatrax is the fighter that you probably want to inspire first, if only because they potentially benefit the most from it. What I really like about Apatrax is that they don't necessarily have to be a fighter that you have to protect. I think this is also perfect bait, right? Your opponent knows the power of Hypnotize. They might want to eradicate it. And maybe this can allow you to position a enemy charge just by serving Apatrax up for an attack in in essence you're kind of getting that hypnotized outcome just in a different way but again like what's really cool is you can just move three and as long as that move ends within two hexes of an enemy fighter then you can just move that enemy fighter off and i think what's really cool about the current meta and the current competitive landscape is that positioning does matter being within one hex of no man's territory being in enemy territory being able to turn off some of the scoring that your opponents can rely on is very fascinating, very powerful. So keeping Apatrax alive is also maybe something that's super important. Maybe you don't want to risk Apatrax as bait. I'm just trying to think of many ways that you can play around with this character. And all of the changers really are, are really interesting and dynamic in that way because there are just certainly so many options that you can do. And they present not only you with choices, which we love here on Path to Glory, but they force your opponent to make choices. And what I'm really getting from this warband is sort of that Hexbane Hunters feel. And it may not be as punishing for your opponent to kill your fighters, but ultimately they do have to make choices in terms of how they take your fighters out. Because if you kill Apatrax early, then you have to suffer the wrath of maybe some of your other fighters, right? If they don't take Apatrax out early, then maybe Apatrax outcontrols them and stops them from scoring. And I really enjoy that. I think that there's going to be a lot of fun to be had with this warband. And I do agree that the whole idea of Lamprey is that your fighter kind of just chills, brings someone to them, you know, that stare fish, that bright glowing eye that they get hypnotized and then they clamp down and hopefully kill and eat their target. But again, I think this also brings up another cool mini game because you can hypnotize an enemy fighter, right? And then maybe you win the roll off, but you don't choose to go with Apatrax, you leave that threat open. So then you can force your opponent to maybe say, oh, he didn't, he didn't try to attack me. Great. Maybe I can try to kill Apatrax or move away from Apatrax. But the whole time, that's what you want to happen so that you can maybe manipulate another end of the board as well, which is very Zinch-like. Mm -hmm. So I really like the idea 
and the threats that these fighters, particularly this fighter, presents. Because there are a lot of mind games to be had as well. Yeah, I, I mind games is a great way to put it. I really like what you said about forcing your opponent to make decisions. My favorite decks historically have been ones where I can force my opponent to have no good choices. This was kind of, I mean, if you remember our Adepticon game, this was my, the entire point of my Skaven deck is like, this guy has expendable, so he's not worth any glory. This one, you know, explodes when he dies and deals damage and, you know, or like gives out a charge token and just kind of setting up a situation where it's like, no matter what you do, I'm getting some positive benefit out of it. And I think you're exactly right. That's what Appetract is going to do. It's like, you can target Apatrax, who might have two dodge and might survive the attack, or you can ignore him and I'm going to get hypnotized, or you can attack him and kill him, but then he's not the one I inspired, or she's not the one I inspired, so I have an inspired one, and then next turn I'm going to inspire another one, which is going to inspire my leader and give me some sort of cascading bonus based on that. I, I think this is going to give you so many ways to set up really fun situations to put your opponent in a, put your opponent in the think tank, so to speak. Completely agree. It's also going to put you in the think tank. I mean, try to win an eight round event with this warband and not have your brain fried. Oh yeah. I, I think, I think I will not bring this to an event until I have played like two dozen games with them. Just because I know, you know, the first like handful of games you play with this warband, the games are going to take like two hours. It's going to be so long. Yeah. Like I pride myself on my ability to like wing a lot of warbands or like maybe not require a lot of practice with them. Because I, I feel like my skill for the game kind of carries me through maybe some nuanced situations. But this is one of those warbands like Eyes of the Nine, where I think you get punished if you don't put in the reps. Indeed. Yeah, it, it feels a little bit like Soul Raid. I remember the first couple times I played Soul Raid, I got my teeth pushed in because there's so much to keep track of. And then once you get used to it, it you learn the power. It's a high ceiling. And I think that's what you're going to see here as well. Absolutely. Very high ceiling. And the floor isn't very low either. I think, you know, this is a fairly decently powerful warband just from the fighter cards and the plot card alone. Mm -hmm. But Zach, it wouldn't be a Path to Glory podcast if I didn't ask you what your favorite fighter was. It's such a hard question because I think they're all great, especially Ethelin themselves, I think is very, really good. I'm going to go with Kindlefinger though. I really like this two dodge minus one damage you know, shooty, but also kind of wants to get close for extra damage piece. I think it's might not be the cornerstone of your game, but I think there's going to be a point in every game where Kindlefinger gets to do something cool. And I really like that. I like that. I do like that. I think the miniature is fantastic as well, albeit quite mm. creepy. But I do agree. Kindlefinger seems like they can be a very impactful fighter in the game and, and perhaps maybe someone that you don't want to attack when opposing this warband just because it could be a trap, which I think is very interesting. Obviously, Apatrax, Bonma, and Ephilim are very cool. I think, obviously, Ephilim is the low-hanging fruit, and I do try to avoid that on most occasions. <laughs> I think for me here, I think Flame Spooler is the most interesting, and so I will lump that in with the term favored as well, if only because I really like tech pieces that shine in particular matchups. And while Flame Spooler, again, isn't necessarily going to be extremely useful or extremely pivotal in most matchups. The games in which Flame Spooler is interesting and is pivotal and is someone who's going to be making a lot of big impact, that's what excites me about them. You know, we live in this day and age where Beastbound Assault, Exiled Dead is very popular. And I think a lot of people have not actually 
caught on to that yet. I mean, people may talk about it, but we still haven't seen those numbers bump up. But once that combination, especially in rivals and in championship, starts becoming more ubiquitous, units or fighters like Flamespooler are going to be interesting in combating that, which I find to be very interesting and exciting. Yeah, I, I, I agree about it being a technique. So I think that's a, a great pick. It's a great pick. Well, thank you. So now we go to the actual deck, the objective deck specifically. Zach, take yeah. these away. Well, yeah, let's start it off. So we're going to start with an awful end, which I'm just going to gush about the card art on basically every single card. It is so good. And all the stuff I heard talk about aesthetics, but this one in particular where Spawn Maw is just swallowing a Stormcast Eternal whole. So cool. Anyway, an awful end. Surge, score this immediately after an enemy fighter's taken out of action by a friendly changer's attack action, one glory. I do agree. The art is fantastic on all of these. I think the theme is purple, blues, and teals, and I think it works really well. I do also find it interesting that the first card in your deck has the word end in it, which is very interesting, like the beginning of the end. Yeah, it is very zinchy. Going to the card itself, I think it's a good card. Your changers, they're four out of your five fighters. Some of them have very good attack actions. Some of them have very accurate attack actions. While it may be a terrible way to go for your opponent, it's a fantastic way for you to get started when it comes to your glory engine, because including the bounty from the kill itself, that's two glory. Yep, there's a bit of matchup dependency here. I mean, obviously the changers aren't great at dropping big beefy fighters. This will be an easier and more difficult depending on the matchup. I guess the only downside here is that later in the game, there's a non-zero chance all four changers will be dead, but you know, that that's these types of cards in general. Yeah, what I also find interesting is that while two of the changers have ways to improve damage, I think what is particularly interesting is that none of them have cleaver and snare. And I feel like we're taking that for granted a little bit because they're so common nowadays on fighters, right? They just kind of throw cleave and snare stagger everywhere. And none of these fighters are getting those keywords, not even Ephilim themselves. So I wonder if that does make this card harder to score. Again, that being said, because I think you have so many fighters you can certainly finish a fighter off with a three fury or two smash attack, which most of these fighters have. Yeah, not not to dwell too long on it, but I think that's an interesting point. There's no cleave, but they make up for it in essence by everybody inspiring to really high accuracy. Most of these fighters are throwing three dice. The ones that aren't are throwing two cha- channel, which is channel is the most accurate face you can get without support. So yeah, it's, there's that balancing act, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, you have four changers, you're probably going to kill someone with a changer. So it's a good card. It's a very solid pick. Mm -hmm. Next, we're going to go to arcane mastery. This is a surge score this immediately after the second or subsequent spell cast by a friendly fighter in the same phase. One glory. I think this is a very interesting card because a lot of the fighters have spell attack actions. So what this really means is that if you just. In some warbands, this could just read make two successful attack actions because a spell is only ever cast when it is a successful attack action that deals damage. I think Ephilim is a great candidate to obviously score this with, especially in a turret-heavy build. There are a lot of gambits in this deck as well as becoming of a magic warband. So there's a lot of ways you can do this naturally and without feeling like you have to force it. And let me just double check here, but outside of 
Apatrax. I think everybody has a magic attack. I mean, Flame Spooler has it. Kindlefinger has it. Maybe Spawn Ma. No, Spawn Ma has Warp Blaze as well. So yeah. it's everybody but Apatrax. Yeah, the, the one on Spawn Ma isn't great, but if it scores you a glory, it's probably worth shooting. I think you can count, or at least recall, you know, taking subpar rolls to try to win a game, and it's worked oh, out, yeah. so. Absolutely. In a pinch, the option is there, which I think is relevant, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, good card all around. I mean, very solid. Next, we go to Callus Manipulator Surge Hybrid. Score this immediately after an activation step or power step. If a friendly fighter is taken out of action in that step, or two or more friendly changers are staggered one glory. I love cards like these because they provide your opponent with tough choices. And essentially, you're going to try to kill them. They're going to try to kill you. That's kind of the way Underworlds works in a nutshell. You can obviously avoid trying to kill a specific number of fighters, maybe trying to avoid cards like pure damage. But this is, again, like one of those cards like Bring It On, like Mad Mob, where at one point, one of your fighters is going to get charged and they may probably defend it and not take damage or they'll take damage and not die. In this situation here, it's very similar. Your opponent kills one of your fighters. Okay, well, now you just offset one of their glory by scoring a glory yourself later in that game. Yeah, I mean, the first part of this is Martyred, which was a old school surge that was very popular and very powerful. I mean, obviously it doesn't work for your leader, but kind of whatever. But the second part is also really heavily under your control because you're almost always going to have a stagger changer due to the cycle. And then you can just go Dell. And so in a pinch, you can just score this by not interacting with your opponents, but taking a ma major downside at the same time. And maybe your opponent has like a stagger attack, or maybe your opponent has some ability that staggers like the Storm Coven's Inspire mechanic on Dominic. So I think there will be a number of ways you can score this. And because of that, I think this is basically always an auto-include. I completely agree. I didn't even talk about the second option, but there are just so many instances where it does pop up to where, like you said, start the game, stagger a fighter, and then maybe in a power step before the round ends, delve with another fighter to stagger them, right? And then, boom. Easy. Easy. Three for three, man. Three surges, three bangers. Well, not necessarily all bangers, but they're all playable and good. All playable, yeah. Well, we're going to go to another surge. This one might look familiar. This is called Closing the Circle. Surge, score this immediately after an opponent's power step if your warband holds three or more objectives for two glory. Yeah, I love this card. It does look familiar. And that card in the past that this card is referring to, Temporary Victory, was so good that it got restricted. Now, granted, there are some warbands that still have access to the power of that card. And whenever those warbands are built, they usually take that card, specifically Purifiers. This is a good card. This is going to work. All of your demons can hold objectives. They're not beasts. They just can't have attack action upgrades in the plot card, which is a distinction that's important. Again, I like it. I mean, why would you not want to kind of try to play for this? Especially because you have so many range fighters that can benefit from maybe just standing on an objective and firing bolts away. Granted, we are living in a meta where which honestly is very subject to change, right? But just going off very recent experience, there's a lot of fighting over objectives, especially near no man's land. But I still think that you can get this fairly reasonably 
Though what I do like is that they've baked in the ability for your opponent to counterplay because it's after an opponent's power step. Yeah, I think that makes it more balanced than something like temporary victory, even though this is not a warband with multi-moves or like baked in pushes, which is usually why those cards were too good in the past, temporary victory notably. Making it after the opponent's power step gives them time to punch or push or do whatever. But it is good. I mean, and, you know, also note Spawn Maw is move five. I mean, it's it's hard to forget or it's easy to forget, but move five is really good. And if your opponent is Fearsome Fortress or Daring Delvers where they want to come and go on one of your objectives, you can just yeet Spawn Maw back into their territory and there are very few objectives that are going to be safe from move five, just going and standing on it or charging onto it because they have a, she has a, a range three attack action. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways to score this. It's not as easy as temporary victory used to be. Again, no multi-move, but it probably makes it a deck just for being a good two glory surge. Yeah. And keep in mind, you said multi-move and, and that made me think about, you know, the fact that you can just move again. So in certain situations, like Oh yeah, true. In theory, it is easier to kind of get onto these objectives because of how often you can move with a fighter. Is it efficient? Maybe. But is it worth two glory, especially after a power step? Maybe. Probably. And I like it, and I certainly want to try it. Yeah, I think it's absolutely worth trying. Mm-hmm. So we'll move on to Glorious Change. Hybrid. Score this in an end phase if two or more surviving friendly changers each have one or more upgrades or two or more enemy fighters each have two or more wound counters and or are out of action two lots of twos i think this is yeah i think it's a very reliable card two or more friendly changers each having one or more upgrades is very reasonable especially because we have the new salvage rule which allows you to cycle through your deck so there are some changer specific upgrades that you can kind of go for here you could even maybe go for the traits like flying so maybe for apatrax you know maybe if there are upgrades that focus on flying in the future you can try to get that to go but one or more upgrades is is fairly reasonable and you can probably do that in one turn alone at the end of the the end of the round the other one is is fairly reliable as well because obviously matchup dependent which is why they have that first option but killing two or more enemy fighters is great but even wounding them is even better because uh, the chicken, he can kind of just do this by himself. He can just hit a guy for one damage and ping his friend. Yeah, the ping does go at the start of the round, so you wouldn't be able to score until the next round after. But if you do the warp splash round one, deals the damage, start round two, you draw this round two, it's in the bag. Yeah, I think it's very, I think the second yeah. part of this makes it extremely reliable. And then the first part will just sometimes score easily as well. So great cards yeah and depending on the the rivals deck that you pair this with right like tearing delvers just comes with two pings so uh, you can just, delvers yeah you could because i've started games like i mean adepticon recently like there were many games where i was just like wow i have flame and quick roots in my opening hand hell yeah yeah uh, and that's gonna happen from time to time and there you go yeah i, I think that's very very true <laughs> i think what i've realized over time is daring delvers is the best rivals deck I think everyone was really high on Tooth and Claw, but as I've played with Daring Delvers more and more, it's just the better of the two. I think Daring Delvers has very underwhelming objectives, without going too deep into it. But if you 
are playing a deck that has good objectives baked into it, like Mad Bob, which you played, or either of these two new ones, which have very good objectives that we're looking at. Hey, getting some great power cards is always a good deal. Mm -hmm. Speaking of good objectives, let's talk about ineffable capering. Dual score this in an end phase if your warband cast one or more spells during the preceding action phase and your warband made one or more successful range one attack actions during the preceding action phase to glory. Yeah, honestly, great card. Again, casting a spell is fairly easy in this warband, especially with all the access to range magical attack actions that come built into the fighter. I like it. A range one attack action is a little bit of a commitment, but I think with the combination of Spawn Maw, Apatrix, you can do it. And worst case scenario, you can give your leader a range one attack action upgrade, and then maybe they can just start swinging some swords. So overall, pretty reliable, solid card. Yeah, just the fact that, I mean, you could do it in one activation effectively. Like if you get a successful range one attack action and then cast a Gambit spell. You don't even have to worry about this card anymore. So yeah, mm -hmm. great, great card. Might of the Great Changer Surge. Score this immediately after the second or subsequent enemy fighter was dealt damage by your warband in the same phase. One glory. Another good card. I think second or subsequent enemy fighter was dealt damage by your warband. I mean, the warband is the power cards as well. So ping cards, attack actions, spells. I mean, you name it. Pretty yeah. solid. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it's Warband, like you said, power cards, very easy. So, yeah, I think that's a, a pretty, pretty easy one to do. Yeah, so far, I don't think we've come across a bad objective. I may have jinxed us, but... <laughs> well, let's talk about Nine Fates. I believe this one was previewed in the preview article. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about it regardless. Nine Fates, score this at the end phase if the value of objectives your Warband holds adds up to nine precisely e.g. objectives four and five. When you score this objective, if your warband holds three objectives, gain one additional glory point to glory. Yeah, this is like a more complicated supremacy with some flexibility. Effectively hold three objectives that equal nine. And I think one of those mathematically has to be a four or five. So it's five, one, and three, or two, four, and three. So if you're going for... The three scoring, a three has to be involved somewhere, I believe. Be well, you'd oh. have to have either a four or a five at the very least. Yes. There's no way you can total nine without one of those numbers. Yeah, you can't do one, two, and three. Yeah. Exactly. So if four and five are on your opponent's side of the board, I guess you're SOL. But outside of that, I mean, it's rare that that's going to happen consistently. And I think you can fight for it. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I don't know if this card necessarily requires inclusion outside of a rival's deck because I think maybe it limits you more than you really need to be limited. I think when holding objectives and some of the other cards, it offers you the ability to do so without a specific requirement. This might just make things a little bit too complicated and this might actually be too much overhead for your brain, right? Not only are you thinking about what your fighters can do, the matchup, the plot order and everything, but now you have to worry about what numbered objectives you're standing on. I don't know. I guess I did jinx this in that regard because Nine Fates is a little bit complicated. It's not to say it's a bad card. That's not what I'm saying. Sure. Because there are going to be games where four and five are in your zone and you just get two glory. But I just am not really feeling the extra load and perhaps even 
the fact that you need to hold three at the end of the phase. And if you look at the new maps, right, the new boards for this season, they are a little complicated and they are a little objective placement unfriendly. Mm, that that so. is true, depending on the board you select and stuff. I or the fact that your opponent might pick a board that's just not congruent to the strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I will take the slightly more positive approach. The first part of this, the two glory part, where if you hold four or five, you just get two glory. That was Tactical Supremacy 4-5, which is part of the Essentials pack. And during the Rivals Plus era, when Essentials was a secondary deck you could pick from, you would see people run it. You would see people run, well, maybe not specifically 4 and 5, but Tactical Supremacy cards. Just because, you know, multi-glory end phases are better than single-glory end phases. And I think just the capacity to have a reasonably scorable three-glory end phase in a deck is a boon. We talk about it a lot. A lot of times when they print thematic three-glory end phase cards, they're like not actually scorable. They're more thematic. They don't really exist to be like high-powered cards. And while Nine Fates is not necessarily high-powered, it is scorable and playable. And I think it, you know, especially if you're a nemesis and you're like, man, I could really use a glory spike in my deck. A three-glory end phase card is a glory spike, even if it is a little difficult to pull off. I think that's fair. And look, I'm not saying it's a bad card. I'm just saying when compared to all the other options, the yeah. moment you leave rivals, this is probably a card I'm just going to cut. That's fair. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I would just go to say that it is worthy of consideration because a lot of times when we talk about cards that you just cut outside of rivals, it's just like, ah, no, you're never going to take it. Now it's kind of like, you probably won't take it, but maybe you've got an end phase slot. Yeah. I mean, I certainly wouldn't fault anyone for wanting to make this work or even succeeding with it, right? I would be, mm -hmm. I would be like, yeah, that makes sense. But me, it's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll go on to rampant spellcasting hybrid. Score this in an end phase if you warband cast three or more spells in the preceding action phase, or you have no power cards in your hand and there are three or more gambits in your power discard pile to glory. Again, I think this is a fantastic end phase card. You have the ability to where you can score this when dice work out because you have some attack action upgrades, which is really funny given the card art is just like laser beams coming out of everywhere from Ephilim, which is cool. So yes, you can cast the spells. I think what this is really nice also is that you have this backup strategy here over the course of this game as well, where maybe your attack, your especially your magic dice aren't really hitting. They're not really in their stride, or maybe you're failing some casts. Well, no problem, because at one point or not in the game, you're going to have three or more gambits in your power discard pile, especially when you're failing to cast spells, right? So I don't necessarily think casting three is easy, but it's not necessarily hard as well. And eventually this is a card that's just going to be scored. Yeah, I, I think the second part is actually more reliable personally. Have no power cards in hand. That just happens. And sometimes it'll just happen. You'll just get two glory from it. So it, yeah. it's good. What I find interesting is that cards like these also maybe force you to play your cards earlier than you want them to. Mm, true. And so I do like that downside as well, where you might have a situation where is it worth playing this card not to its maximum potential for two glory? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, like you said, this is a... Warband that will break your brain by the end of a tournament because you're going to keep making decisions like that. 
Yeah. And over time, hopefully a lot of decisions will just like, you'll know the answer, but then new ones will pop up. So. Yeah. So let's jump into scornful stance. Score this in in phase of a friendly leader is holding an objective for one glory. Very easy, very simple, very reliable. The fact that your fighter likes to live at the range two, range three makes sense. Mm-hmm. Range I four, think. actually. Range four, actually, correct. Yeah, yeah, I think this is certainly a card that you could take in for a reliable end phase score for one glory. Yeah, the fact that it can be in your territory is great. Usually these are like in enemy territory or in no man's land. So you can just play safe with Ephelim. I would have liked this to be in outside your territory just to make it a little bit more complicated it's just it's just like it's just another good card you know (laughs) it 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 does feel a little bit free i i think the intention is that they kind of want this to be a pseudo hold objective deck and historically the put your most important fighter in enemy territory is not a good hold objective card so i think this might kind of be the compromise for it but either way it is a good card Mm, fair. Spreading mutation. Score this in the end phase. If your warband holds more objectives than each other warband, one glory. I don't mind it. Like, it's not a bad card. It's certainly not one that I'm going to go for, if only because it's quite counterable. Mm-hmm. And it's just one glory. If it's two glory, I'd really fight for it. And again, you have a lot of tools to push. Like, even Apatrax can just yank someone off an objective to where you can get to the to more, right? But it's just one glory. <laughs> if by two glory, you mean dominant position. Yes. Yeah. It, it's not dominant position, but I don't hate it. It's fine. And then finally, we've got Violent Change, another Surge. Score this immediately after an enemy fighter is taken out of action by your Warband's spell attack action or your Warband's warping counter one glory. I don't mind it at all. I think this is a card that is actually fairly reliable, given the fact that all but one of your fighters have a spell attack action printed on the card <laughs> Ephilim is probably going to kill people so the thing that you have to think about is if you're going to have this card in your hand when those attack actions are made so I think the interesting breakpoint with surges is like if anybody can do it and you require a kill it's fine if you don't require a kill and anyone or a specific fighter needs it to be done it's fine but when you need specific things to happen in specific instances, that's when I think it becomes a little bit more difficult. And for that reason, I think this card is okay. Yeah, probably one of the lower surge cards, but still definitely playable. Yeah, I mean, I I can see you scoring this in every game, right? It's mm-hmm. just, we're nitpicking. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That is the end of the objective deck. Aman... Do you have a favorite one? And what is your overall opinion of this objective deck? Yeah, overall opinion of the objective deck is that it's freaking strong, man. <laughs> you know, like this is a very good, cohesive, play synergistic objective deck. And I think that's important because when, again, you compare this eyes of the nine, they have like a very boo-boo objective deck. So I think Games Workshop did the community right by saying, hey, we're going to make a Zinch Warband with a fully functioning objective deck. That's going to be able to allow you to follow a very cohesive game plan while still having that fun and that mystery and those shenanigans that's done with chaos and Zinch in particular. Yeah. Oh, and what's your favorite card then? Yeah. Yeah. Getting to that. I think 
A lot of the surges are very interesting. I think, honestly, I'm just going to pick Might of the Great Changer because of the card art. Because it's, it's so cool. Yeah, it's the, it's the Thanos snap happening in real life, right? Yeah, hitting Manok in his face, turning him into dust. Yeah, it's, it's a good card. It looks like it was fun to create. But again, like the reason I'm just picking one at random per se is because the whole deck is pretty damn good. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I, I'm just happy to see a new, like I said, pseudo hold objective deck. I mean, we didn't see any warbands in Narrowwood that really cared about standing on objectives. I guess there was some in Loon Court, but not really. I guess there were a couple in Sons of Elmorn, but you know, it wasn't really a, a theme for any of them. And I think it's great to see that theme return with Pandemonium. Agreed. Do you have a favorite objective card, Zach? Oh, I love Callous Manipulator. The friendly changer dies or you have two stagger changers. I just think it's such a such a eminently scorable and interesting decision making card. I love it. Yeah, for both you and your opponent, right? Mm-hmm. If you had to rate this objective deck from a one to ten in terms of power level. I'd give it like a solid eight or nine. I I it's good, but it is still it is kind of a positional deck which of course we, we haven't seen any of the power cards yet but you know these generally rely on pushes to stay on objectives and stuff or multi-move type pushes and it requires aggro with some of your squishiest models you know make range one attack actions kill somebody with a changer you know it's not a it's not a deck that's like put everything on FLM and go super Voltron. You can't really do that and score this deck. So it's a deck that requires a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and can be countered. So in terms of design, 10 out of 10. In terms of power level, I think it's like a solid 8 or 9. Yeah, and there could be a, a manner in which like these cards look good on paper, mm -hmm. but when playing the Warband and going through the motions, some of these cards can be harder to score than maybe we're giving them credit for. But again, I think objectively it looks very strong and I'm with you on that. So moving to the next part of the review, we're going to take a look at the power cards, specifically the Gambit cards. We're going to take a look at Bolt of Zinch, which is a Gambit spell that casts on a channel. If cast, choose an enemy fighter within four hexes of the caster, deal one damage to and stagger the chosen fighter. Hey, we're starting off with a banger. It is a range four ping that casts on the easiest casting in the game. It goes in your deck first. Not only is it a ping, you get to stagger as well. Yeah, which can turn off like delve and stuff. It's really good and set up for future shooting attacks now that stagger works on magic attacks. So it's, it's, I mean, there is no downside to this card. You put it in your deck. You put it in your deck indeed. Next card is Extra Teeth. Plus one dice and cleave to the first range one or range two attack action made by a friendly fighter in the next activation step. It's perfectly serviceable. Determined effort type cards are great. Sadly, it doesn't affect all your range three stuff, which a lot of fighters only have range three attacks, but plus one dice and cleave. Cool. You're already very accurate warband. You're making yourself even more accurate. That's great. Yes, and it allows you to score some of the cards that we just discussed that require you to make successful attack actions, specifically range one. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Field of Change is the next card, Gambit Spell, that casts on a channel. If cast, you can reroll one dice and defense rolls made for friendly fighters. 
this effect persists until the end of the round. It's very good. I mean, I don't know what to say. Again, easiest casting outcome. It's a, what's the word? It's a domain card, but it only affects you. Positively too. Yeah, it's only a positive effect because it's the entire round. Like, it's it's so good. I mean, obviously, your one dodge fighters, sure, getting the reroll is nice, but it's probably not going to save them most of the time. But sometimes it will. And otherwise, this is just helping you score things that go off casting. So, yep, great card. No downsides. Yeah, I think this is very interesting. Because, like, one dodge isn't very good, but then one dodge rerollable is significantly better. And then you go to like two dodge with a reroll. It's pretty nice. You go one, even one dice with a reroll on block, right? Because you're going to, well, not block, but guard, because you're going to get the plot card where you put a fighter on guard. I mean, it's very, it's very nice. It's going to go off most of the time. I know Ephilim starts at level one, but you know, a channel on one die is like what? Well, so. you're also level two while you're near other changers. So you're going to be yeah, two most not, of the time. Yeah, sure. You're not always going to guarantee that, but yeah, I guess maybe for the beginning of the game, you probably can. Yeah. This is a good one. This is a good one. Grand scheming. Stagger each fighter with one or more charge tokens. It's interesting. I mean, I think the design here is, well, you can, you can stagger your little dudes a charge for. That doesn't really matter. I think, you know, the hopeful design is that you kind of stay in your territory, get on objectives, your opponent charges into punch you off your objectives and kill you and score their stuff and then you just drop grand scheming be like hey thanks for coming in here's a stagger token and then just like attack them it's good but it'll it's probably it comes with a downside because you stagger your own guys and i don't know if stagger one to two fighters for a card is necessarily strong enough yeah it's interesting because like when i look at cards like these especially in core boxes or starter boxes you have cards in there that discuss specific mechanics because this is also the designers showing potentially new players or returning players how to go through all of these mechanics without making it like forced and and maybe this is a force but what what i like about it is that this helps you score that card in your deck that allows you or needs you to score off staggered fighters oh yeah there is that as well so it's just another way to to score that card the next card is latching tendrils choose one enemy fighter push the chosen fighter up to two hexes so they are adjacent to one or more friendly changers yeah i mean push two is really good obviously you have to put them adjacent to a changer which is not great i mean sometimes depends maybe it is you don't necessarily want to bring in a big scary enemy fighter but like same thing that we already talked about stairfish this is a unpositioning tool to mess with people or set up attacks or set up support it's just really really good double distraction that requires some setup and comes with some downside is is still a really really good card i agree i think it's a solid card i think this actually works really well with the with apatrix because you can push a fighter towards them and then get the lamprey attack before having to wait till the next round potentially so I like it. At the worst case scenario, it's a complicated distraction. And distraction is like the best card in the game ever. So I digs it. I would agree, yeah. Next we have Mutative Siphon. Choose a friendly changer within two hexes of a friendly wizard. Deal one damage to and stagger the chosen changer. 
plus two range to the next spell attack action to a maximum of six made by that wizard in the next activation step. It's cute, I think is the way I would describe it. Like, going to range six is hilarious as an idea because it's just like, there's literally nowhere to hide. But how often is that going to be super impactful on the game when you're already range four and generally speaking the meta is already kind of close so to speak i think sometimes this is going to be really like i think if you're playing rivals and this is in your deck you will absolutely find use for it but i don't know if it's good enough to make a cut yeah that's interesting because again a you have this stagger synergy which is useful for your scoring but secondly i think why i find this card interesting is because after I've charged, you know, let's say it's later in the game, I can keep making attack actions with my range for attack action, right? But what if I can't get to you? You know, what if I don't have the range and I need that range to be able to maybe win the game or make some changes or push you off an objective? I mean, range six is, is, is nasty and that can really make the difference there. Obviously, you know, the attack would fail, et cetera, et cetera. But all you're doing is staggering a changer. It's not the worst thing you need. You could do. Yeah. I mean, the effect is good. The range is good. And especially if your leader just wants to be on a token, your opponent's trying to run away. But like I said, I don't think the current metagame has a lot of running away. But maybe as the game progresses, I think maybe we'll see some more use for it. For sure. For sure. The next one is Shared Mutations. Gambit Spell casts on two channels. First card that requires more than one successful channel. If cast, deal one damage to each enemy fighter that is adjacent to one or more friendly fighters. Few cards that require two successes generally don't make the cut just because they are generally harder to cast, but you can be a range or fight a level three wizard sometimes, which makes this not trivial, but pretty likely. I think like probably doing the math in my head, I think it's like a 73-ish percent chance. And that's pretty good, especially if you kind of set it up so two or three fighters are getting hit ping three for two channel is good anything less than that is like okay and because of that i'm not crazy about it but like hey ping is good so i again like you like you like to say i don't fault anyone for taking this i think if you take this and you're just like hey i really like pink cards more power to you but i also don't know how reliable it is yeah, I would say that even two ping for two channel might be worth it for me. I like the fact that you can get to level two and level three fairly decently. So I think level three comes with its own set of challenges because you're more likely to miscast and take that damage. But, you know, I know that we don't really like to talk about upgrades and, you know, before we get to those specific upgrades, but there is an upgrade that lets you reroll a dice in your casting roll. And this could probably help improve the consistency of the output fairly yeah. higher. Yeah, for sure. And there's the whole, you know, magic seismic shock rivals deck that we haven't even talked about yet that you can pair with this. I mean, obviously Daring Delvers with Ping is great, but a rivals deck full of wizard stuff probably has rerolls and innates and things like that. So yeah, there's probably definitely ways to make this more reliable. Like I said, I think it's a perfectly fine card. It's just not my favorite that we've seen so far. I agree. But yes, I also agree that when you're getting to the three fighter plus, that's quite compelling. Now, it wouldn't be a Zine Torband if we didn't have some weird 
tricksy shenanigans when it comes to fighter placement. So Southern Warp Portal. Choose two friendly fighters that are within three hexes of each other. Place each fighter in the hex that was occupied with the other fighter when you chose them. I like this one because it's a callback to Eyes of the Nine. Eyes of the Nine also had a swap like this. It's like it's like a mega confusion because you can do it from a range. There's a lot you can do with this. You can set up range attacks. You can set up Lamprey Bite. You can get a stagger fighter out of dodge or a wounded fighter out of dodge and just kind of like get them further away, get a more healthy fighter up front. You can get your leader into range. You can get your leader into a plus one wizard position, potentially. Like, there's just so much you can do with this. And it's such a cool card. I mean, there will be, I think there will be some games where your positioning is on spot and you won't really need this. But when it's good, I think it's insane. Agreed. This is a very powerful card, but needs to be used in the right circumstances. Yep. I like it. The next one is Summoned Abomination. Gambit spell channel. If cast, place one friendly changer that is out of action on a starting hex in your territory. 10 out of 10. Take it every single time. Imagine how, for, like, res effects are usually, usually have the warband built around them. The last time we saw a resurrection effect that wasn't warband specific was partial resurrection, and it was restricted because it was really good. Now, this has a chance of failure, obviously, but, like, imagine you put a lot of effort into killing a changer who's three wounds or the, you know, Kindle Flame who's that reducing damage by one and stuff. You put a lot of effort in and I just go, cool, snap my fingers, they're back on the board. Resurrection in warbands that don't revolve around resurrection is generally extremely powerful. I think this is an auto-include in every single deck. I certainly think that you're probably going to take this in every single deck, especially because it's important for later stages in the game, right? Like, what if you want that push and you can't get to it because you've lost a changer? This allows you to access maybe steps or on the plot card that were unaccessible because you don't have enough changers. Mm. Following that, you know, maybe you don't have enough changers to get Ephilim to... Inspiration. Yeah, I was just about to say, they, if they keep hunting down your inspired fighters, you can just bring one back that's inspired because it comes back with the same state it died in. Exactly. And then the other thing that I was going to mention is Power Leech, right? Like if you're trying to get Ephilim to level 2 or level 3, depending on what side they are on, this can kind of help you do that immediately. Yep, just pop them up. Now I'm level 3. Now my shooting is really good. Now I can potentially cast that 2-channel card. It's solid. Solid. Last gambit here, the Will of the Architect. Pick two feature tokens. Place each feature token in the hex the other feature token was in when you picked them. I remember when this was dark inversion and it was so good that everyone complained about it all the time. Now we're not, we're living in a very different metagame and dark inversion was really good with like hidden objectives and stuff, but I think the effect is still really strong. You have just the ability, like, you know, this helps you score your hold objectives that add up to nine card. If you, if you're running that card. If your opponent is Fearsome Fortress or Daring Delvers, you can use it to get objectives that are on the backside of their board, bring it to you by throwing away the feature tokens that they place because both those decks drop feature tokens. You can use it to, if you're running those decks, you know, use Fearsome Fortress to put a cover hex or a snare hex in the middle of the board and then swap it with one of your opponent's 
objectives that just kind of set up really good situations. I just think there's so many ways to use this. Maybe if you're just like, maybe if you're not playing a deck that drops feature tokens, you decide not to take it. But I, I just think, it, I just think it's really good. And I think it's going to mess with your opponent in a lot of ways. The thing is, is it doesn't say that the feature tokens, like there's no limitations, right? Like they can be occupied. They yes. can be unoccupied, which is very interesting. So maybe your opponent's trying to stand on objectives five and four. So you don't score nine fates and you're just like, eh, don't matter. I'm <laughs> going to get it. And here's why, right? So I think this is a very interesting card that can create a lot of mind games. You can swap them for holding an objective with a snare hex. Like you said, there's so many different use cases that I think if we ever get to a point where hold objective warbands are very strong, I think this is a card that can completely ruin a turn for them and potentially brick their whole deck because hold objective warbands rely on end phase scoring to see them through the day. and this can completely terrorize that strategy. Yeah, this and the final power step is killer. It's incredible. So, Zach, give me a favorite. And why is it summoned Abomination? It's summoned Abomination. I love res cards. I play res warbands. It's always been kind of my thing. And I just think the effect on this is so good and cool and flexible and interesting. It's just, it's just a great card. I agree. How about you, Aman? What's your favorite? Yeah, again, I really want to say Bolt of Zinch because the easy pick. range. Yeah, but I'm not going to because it's the easy pick. I like Extra Teeth. Hmm. I've really appreciated plus one dice in the Nemesis era that we're living in in North America because dice manipulation is hard to come by in a limited format. And when looking at picking the best cards between two decks, plus one dice is actually really good. I mean, it turns a two smash attack into three smash. Turns two fury into three fury, supremely more reliable, so on and so forth. Obviously, dice are going to dice, but just speaking from recent experience, it's it's really been a great card. Yeah, I, I a really great agree. effect. Yeah, so. determined effort type cards are just always really solid. I think. Yeah, I, I always slept on them, and I probably would sleep on a card like this in championship. But what I also really like about this is that. It incentivizes me to be aggressive with certain changers and try to improve the reliability of the set outcome I'm looking for, particularly when trying to pair that with objective-based scoring in the deck itself. Yeah, I like that. So that will take us to the final section of the deck, which is upgrades. And so I'll be reading through these. Our first one is Aether Tether. This is an illusion, which we've seen before, but I'll just refresh our memories. Illusions, you do not spend any glory points when you play the card at the end of the action phase, or when this fighter is chosen by a gambit, or this fighter's dealt damage, break the card so it's pseudo free. Illusion, minus one dice from enemy fighter's attack actions to a minimum of one while they target this fighter, restricted to changers. I like this. I think this is important to keep your changers alive in the early game. We've talked about the reasons why having those changers on board is important, whether it's for Inspire purposes for power leech purposes or for just having more bodies on the board so that you can hold objectives. I think this is helpful at any stage in the game, but particularly in the beginning. You can also, honestly, if you really want to pair this with the Kindle Finger, which can make it to where it's minus two when targeting that fighter, up obviously to a minimum of one. So, well, a smart Kindle, about fin that. Kindle Finger is minus one damage, so this is minus one dice. You know, that is an effective stacking as well. I, I would definitely agree with, because now it's two dodge, minus one dice, minus one damage. Like, 
yeah, there's a pretty good chance that you kill it if you hit, but the odds are not in your favor at that point. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I like this too. I think it's a very, very solid inclusion. That brings us to Arch Sorcerer. You can reroll one dice in the spider's casting rolls restricted to your leader. It's a f- pretty much an auto-include. It's a really good card. And your warband relies on Ephilim to do a lot of things. And while I certainly think the power of this deck perhaps functions more on your efficacy of the changers, Ephilim is important because they are going to be your main source of consistent damage, especially in the end game. Yeah, I mean, end game, th- this is just, you're not, like I said before, you're not going to do a whole lot of Voltroning on Ephilim. I think they are a just a piece of the puzzle, but this is a Voltron piece and it will make Ephilim even better. Yes, and it makes all your casting for objectives more consistent as well. Mm. Aura of Mutability is next. Plus one dice to attack actions made by friendly changers within two hexes of this fighter restricted to your leader. I think this is a great card because Ephilim kind of wants to live within that two hexes of changers. So I really like it. It provides a lot of natural synergy and your fighters are already fairly accurate. So making them even more reaccurate, more accurate is awesome because it allows you to not only score cards, but then you just get kills and damage across the board, which is nice. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you picked the plus one dice gambit spell. There's just a lot of accuracy in this deck. Like, you know, we already talked about most of the fighters being three damage or three hammer or two channel baseline. Like they're baseline accurate and there's just like a lot of accuracy available. So it's just a deck that's going to be hitting more often than not. And I think that's interesting. And I think that's important given the fact that they do kind of live in that two damage realm. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be stuck at a lower damage output, you might as well be able to get your attacks off when you need them to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need every, you need every hit to count in this warband. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, solid card. We'll go to Boundless Change. When this fighter makes an attack action, each friendly fighter within three hexes of the target supports that attack action restricted to changers. This is an interesting one because you have to really think about what attack actions you're thinking about, right? Because magic dice don't have supporting sides on them. And a lot of your fighters have attack that are magical attack actions so keep that in mind when implementing this card and planning for it that being said again i think we're at the point where we might have like an accuracy saturation obviously supporting roles are good but i much rather just take extra dice on my attacks ultimately it's a good card i think you might have to think about positioning a little bit but it just feels like it's a nice to have when it works out I can easily just seeing this equipping it and being like, well, I guess this fighter is within two fighters. You know, I can get maybe two supports on it for my next attack action. Yeah. I mean, it is says restricted to changer, but given that changers can't get attack action upgrades, there's only two fighters as it even works on. Cause like you said, you don't get support for magic. So it's only stairfish or spawn maw that can even utilize it, which is pretty limited. It's not my favorite accuracy card. I think we've seen 
two other really good accuracy cards that this one might, like you said, might not be needed. There might be a little bit of an overload. So we'll jump then to nefarious defenses. Reaction. Use this during an attack action that targets this fighter after the determined success step. If the attack action succeeds. Minus one damage from that attack action to a minimum of one until that attack action has been resolved. Then deal one damage to a visible friendly changer within two hexes of this fighter. I mean, I think where you're going with this is it's effectively like a shared pain almost to a certain extent. Yes, basically. So I like it. I think it's cool. You have some changers who are two wounds. And so being able to deny that early glory to your opponent or avoid that early death is fairly interesting. I do like that it says visible friendly changer. So that does allow you to play around or play around rather block hexes and things like that. That being said, I, it's a pretty solid card. You do, unlike shared pain, you certainly advertise this quite strongly. And for that, I think it becomes a little bit weaker because a canny opponent can just make it not necessarily as relevant as you want it to be. But again, it's like another one of those cards that puts more load on your opponent, which is cool. Yeah, I really like this on Kindle Finger or Kindle Flame, rather, who's already reducing damage by one. You get hit by a three damage attack. You take two, you reduce it to one, you send one to an ally. It's pretty solid at, in terms of just like negating kills. It does require a lot of setup. Like you said, it's really telegraphed, but I mean, that's what this whole warband's about. The whole warband is. Again, make your opponent make bad decisions. And this is just a card that does that. Yeah, and the cool thing is, is that this is not changer restricted, so you can throw this on Ephilim. Yeah, which is which awesome. is good. It does have to redirect to a changer, so you can't redirect to Ephilim. But yeah, he can absolutely or they can absolutely hold this. Yeah, that's what I was saying, is because Ephilim's gonna be within two hexes of these fighters anyways, right? All for the, the most time. part. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. Skittering Terror is our next card. This is restricted to changer. Plus two, move all this fighters making a charge action. Yeah, this is really interesting because if you look at Spawnma, who's on the card art, he'll just go to seven move on a charge, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. He can kind of get you to get him where he wants to go. Looking at your other fighters, Kindlefinger going to five, Flamespooler going to six, and Apatrax going to five. It's pretty incredible. So if you really need to get somewhere or maybe get a fighter that is out of reach, or maybe you're out of position and you're trying to get back into position, this could be a good way to do so. Yeah, and I like the idea of charging onto an objective with this. Like you said, Flame Spooler going to charge six hexes, range three. You can charge onto a distant objective and take a shot. So the fact that it's only during a charge action, not during a move action, is kind of null because you have so many range three attack actions that it's, it's just a positioning tool. Yeah, and it can help you score nine fates. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's a really, between Bonma having base five, this given plus two, and like the, the swapping feature tokens and stuff, there's like really no way for your opponent to hide objectives specifically from this warband. Yes. We'll jump into Spiteful Mouths. This is restricted to changers. Reaction, use this one, this fighter is the target of an attack action after they determine success step. If this fighter's defense roll contained one or more successes or critical successes, if the attacker is within two hexes of this fighter, deal one damage to that attacker. I like this one because 
It allows you to benefit from rolling the right dice, even though maybe the attack, you know, isn't blocked. So there is some positive to get out of it. You have a card that wants you to wound enemy fighters. This is effectively like a different kind of ping. It's not bad. But again, what I like about this card is that it adds additional mental load on your opponent. Now they're going to be like, hmm, do I really want to attack this fighter? Because then it weakens my fighter on my own turn so that in my opponent's turn, maybe there is a benefit for them. So maybe they can finish off my fighter that maybe wasn't necessarily in one shot range, right? Like it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I also just like that this is, it's a, it's a reaction that happened. A lot of times we've seen these types of cards where it's like deal one damage, but it's like reaction deal one damage when this fighter is damaged, but not kill. And that doesn't always go off because usually a lot of times you just die. This basically, or like, you know, deal damage back when you're attacked and you don't necessarily want to take an attack. Like that's not really good to like take damage, like expect to take damage. But this doesn't care if the opponent succeeds, doesn't care if you would die, it doesn't care if you would take X amount of damage or leave yourself vulnerable. It doesn't have any condition. It's just like, hey, did you roll successful defense? They're just going to take a damage. And I think that is, it's nice to have that reliability. And like you said, to be a deterrent in and of itself. So we will go to the fires of change. This is a attack action upgrade. It's restricted to wizard, which, which is weird because that effectively means it's restricted to your leader, but whatever attack action upgrade. It is range four, three fury, two damage reaction. Use this during the attack action after the deal damage step. For each fighter within one hex of the target, pick one, deal one damage to that fighter, or heal one that fighter. So this is interesting because it gives Ephilim a ranged non-magical attack. Now, I think the reason why it's Restricted Wizard, even though the plot card specifically says changers cannot receive attack action upgrades, is just for, I guess, cohesiveness sake. You know, again, if you're a newer player, this kind of forces these redundancies on you so that you learn and you understand and you connect the dots range four, three fury two damage is an excellent attack action profile in itself especially with maybe your magic dice not rolling hot or your wizard level being in a situation where you're not really benefiting from it because you're not able to maybe stay within two hexes of your fellow changers and this is really cool because the reaction makes it more compelling right it says for each fighter within one hex of the target it could be friendly or enemy fighter what you're able to do is damage that fighter even more which is incredible yeah i mean heal your allies that are nearby but i do have the nitpick question here's the the wording nitpick question of the deck this says for each fighter within one hex of the target not each other fighter within one hex of the target in the rule book i did check this specifically says a fighter is always within zero hexes of itself correct so this is a three damage attack, right? Yes. Currently, as it's worded, that is correct. That's a very strong. I, I expect they might change that to each other fighter within one hex of the target. But as it stands now, a range for three damage attack is, it's good. It's solid. I would say it's a net positive to have in your deck. Yeah. And again, you know, you can't give them too much grief for this because we found the first potential rules query in this warband in the last three cards. Oh yeah. And I don't even think it's that like abusive. I mean, your spell attack action is already range four, 
two damage, very reliable. And like, you know, it, I don't think this is like game breaking. I just think it's really powerful rules as written, like very powerful. Yeah. The more, the actual question I have starting the card is it says for each fighter within one hex of the target, pick one, deal damage to that fighter or heal that fighter. So are you able to heal this? Are you healing your opponent and dealing damage to your opponent? Is that the choice it's giving you? It says each fighter. So I suppose you get to choose on a fighter by fighter basis is how I would interpret that wording. So if, if you target the fighter and then one of your friendlies is adjacent, and then there's also an enemy adjacent, you could deal one to the original target, heal one, your fighter, deal one to the Though it does bring up an interesting question. If you can't heal your fighter, you have to pick the damage. I think that's correct, actually. Yeah, that's how it works. Okay, well, we found the downside. Yeah, but it, is it a downside? Not like, really. Deal no. three damage to your fighter, take one damage from my fighter. I, I would I would take that as a damage upgrade, attack action upgrade anyway, if it was like range four, three damage, but you have to ping one of your fighters. I'm like, yeah, actually, that's a good card, still regardless. Yeah, good card. Interesting card at the very least. Moving right along, we've got too many maws. This is restricted to changers. This fighter's attack actions have Grievous 1. It's not a bad card. Half the time you hit, you're going to crit. In theory, there's no range limitation on this as well, so you can have ranged Grievous attacks, ranged to Grievous magical attack actions. It's incredible. Yeah, I think that's the more compelling part is just that, like, let me scroll back up here to these ranged fighters. It makes Kindle Finger when adjacent, potentially three damage. It makes Flame Spooler two damage with that delayed extra damage. Apatrax, if you get off a Lamprey and a crit is now four damage, like a four damage crit. I mean, uh, it's only two dice, but you know, that's just three inspired. Yeah, and an inspired Spawnma goes to potentially four damage on a crit when attacking a large fighter. So you just crit and then have a paint card and you can kill a large fighter in one round. Like that's, that's terrifying on several levels. It's a good, it's a good, there's a lot of good cards, man. There's, there's a lot, lot there's a lot of good cards here, it turns out. But that's what the people want. I think people would prefer strong cards than weak cards. Yeah. I mean, that's really all it is. Like people are going to scream power creep. People are going to say this, people are going to say that, but ultimately like. It's more exciting for everybody involved when all warbands, at least both warbands and a new core box are very strong because Mm -hmm. then it allows people to have fun with their toys and feel like they can both do cool and powerful things. And if they're both operating in that same sphere, then it's balanced, right? That's how you balance a game. Either everything is weak or everything's good. You just pick your poison. Yeah. And it's a little sad that power creep happens over time you know obviously the early war bands don't really have the same power level it just is what it is but it does feel like it does feel like these guys in storm coven i mean we we still have one more card to go so won't go blather too much but it does feel like these guys in storm coven are on a pretty similar power level and i think like you said that's only good for the game like if they establish this is the power level going forward especially because gnarl spirit pack are also on this power level Maybe not some of the other ones from Gnarlwood, but Gnarl Spirit Pack in particular. Hey, if this is the power level going forward, so be it. At least they're all on that same level. Yeah, and I think if Sons of Velmorn, to 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 capstone this point, mm-hmm. if Sons of Velmorn were on the same power level as the Gnarl Spirit Pack, we wouldn't have as many complaints about the Gnarl Spirit themselves. 
because they would have had like a fair counter with a very cool looking warband. Yeah, absolutely. So then we just have the one last upgrade. This is called Writhing Tentacles. You cannot give this to a large fighter. Use this after an activation step or power step in which this fighter was dealt damage. Pick one. Heal one this fighter or push this fighter one hex. Yeah, it's great. It, it Effectively, it invalidates ping cards, right? Mm -hmm. You ping me, I get to react and heal. Now, there's not even a limit on the number of reactions. Like, it can't say you can only use this reaction once per round or anything like that. Like, mm -hmm. I can just invalidate all your ping cards on one of my most powerful fighters or one of my more pivotal characters in the game. And then, in addition to that, like, you hit me, I can move away, I can maybe get out of assist range, of support range, maybe get onto an objective, maybe help set myself up for a charge or move on to another objective. It's a very, very good card. Yeah, and it's also very flexible. Like, obviously, I think the initial gut reaction is to put this on Ethelin and give them effectively immunity to ping cards, effectively immunity to damage one attack actions. I mean, it's a, it is effectively minus one damage, kind of, sort of, in a lot of ways. But you can put on other things. I, I keep going back to Kindle Flame because I think Kindle Flame's really interesting. This makes Kindle Flame immune effectively in effect to damage to attacks you reduce two down to one you heal one at the end of the round you can put this on spine maw and just have you know a pseudo four wound fighter that moves five like i, I think this the flexibility of this is really really solid completely agree there is a great comparison you made with kimball finger and yeah i mean good card overall but in conjunction with that particular fighter it's Actually, quite incredible with Kindle Finger. Yeah, I, I just, I like this deck. I think the uh, upgrades are good, but if you had to pick one, which upgrade would you say is your favorite? I'm going to go with Arc Sorcerer because I just love magic attacks and casting. Mm -hmm. And I get that there's this element of potential failure with magic, but re-rolling that and kind of smoothing out those unfortunate runs of dice is is important to me because... I like rolling some magic dice, man. They look cool. Don't get to use them enough. Mm -hmm. What about you? I'm getting those spiteful mouths. I just like, I like downsides for my opponents doing things and coming to attack me and then taking damage, whether you succeed or not, is just very fun. Completely concur. So it's a solid card. And one again, that makes you and your opponent both think, which I think the progressive load on your brain <laughs> over the course of the event is either going to go, it's going to get really heavy and harder over the course, course of an event, or maybe you'll just kind of reach the state of Zinchi and Nirvana where you're just like, I know exactly what I'm doing in every moment and I know what to do because I've done this a hundred times. Or you just embrace the madness and you go with the old game plan of, I don't know what I'm doing. My opponent can't possibly know what I'm doing either. That has worked from time to time. Well, Zach, that's going to do it for this Warband in terms of their cards, specifically Objective, Upgrade, Gambit, and Fighter and Plot cards. If you could give me your holistic thoughts on this Warband, I'd really like to hear why you think you're rating them the way you are, pros and cons. Yeah, absolutely. I would put these guys as like a, is pretty high tier Warband. I, I, they're solidly A, maybe like high B at worst. 
This is a warband that requires a lot of knowledge, a lot of practice. You probably need to know matchups really well as well. You know, some warbands you can just kind of like, I know my team, it doesn't really matter where my opponent's playing because uh, I'm going to execute my game plan. That is not what you're doing here. I think you have to adjust how you play depending on who you're facing. But once you learn all these things, once you start to approach that skill ceiling, I think they're very high just because they're, this might be one of the most disruptive warbands in the entire game. Like this feels like as much as this is another Zinch warband, gameplay wise, they almost feel like a Soul Raid 2.0 to me. You know, when Soul Raid came out, we were like, man, these guys are so disruptive. So we're more in flight, very disruptive, doing a lot of things that just mess with your opponent and make them make bad decisions or don't allow them to make decisions, like take decisions away from them and do things that are weird and your opponent can't really react to. And I feel like we're going to get to the same place with these guys where it's like, man, we're, I went against pandemonium and they just like completely screwed with my game plan. Like I didn't know what to do. I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. And I think that's really cool. And I think it is really powerful in conjunction with a good deck, which they have. So yeah, good disruption, good objectives, just solid fighters. Once you get to know how to play that, I think they're going to be good. Like, I don't think they're going to be S tier because I reserve S tier for like, Hey man, you just roll your face on the keyboard and you could probably win the game. If you take my, my video game terminology and I don't think they're that. I think you need skill to play them. And I think even with skill, they will just lose certain matchups or they will just lose to dice sometimes, but they're still overall powerful. So yeah, I think they're great. I think I'm very excited to play them. As much as I gushed about Storm Coven when we talked about them, I think this is the team that I'm going to be playing for the foreseeable future just because they are so, so, so cool. Yeah, I think well summarized and well said. They certainly seem strong. Obviously, they have some fair share of weaknesses. I think with any sort of warband that's slightly larger, maybe like five to six and up, you have this sentiment where generally, according to game design, your fighters are a little weaker. Now, this warband does a lot to mitigate that, either through damage reduction or through guaranteed inspires, which lead to additional dice or through the guard mechanic itself. But I think the... One of the weaknesses the Warband has is that sometimes dice are going to dice, and if your opponent starts critting early, you're just going to lose some fighters. Again, you can bring one back with a spell, but, you know, early aggression is your weakness. Early consistent aggression. I think another thing that can be challenging and maybe turn people potentially off from this Warband is that it is a little complicated. It's not easy to play this Warband. Let me rephrase that. It's not easy to play this Warband well. We talked about a very high skill ceiling. I think that's very accurate. And I think the floor is pretty high too, right? Like you're not just going to pick this warband up and, and, and make it work. You're going to have to put in the reps. You're going to have to put in the time. Part of me finds that very interesting. Part of me finds that a little tedious. As someone who juggles multiple games and as someone who, I mean, just from that alone, I think that's cause enough, right? Like Underworld's the, the the unfortunate reality is, is that Underworlds isn't most people's main game. It's a main game for a good percentage of people, but ultimately, from what I've seen online, is that it's not. It's a secondary or tertiary game. And so are you going to want to put in the amount of thought and effort into a warband at that level? 
again, if you're an Underworlds player, or if Underworlds is your main game, you're going to love this shit, right? You're going to enjoy it. I mean, I see you smiling because like, yeah, it's really enticing for me too at the same time because this makes me want to master this warband. Like if I can win an event with Ephilim's Pandemonium, not only does that make it really cool to see, you know, a Zinch warband take the whole thing, but also like you have to really, you can't really fluke that. You can't just roll hot and win the whole event. Like there are steps that you have to take to be able to demonstrate and flex your skill as a player. And I think that's attractive to competitive players specifically. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly because I think a lot of the complaint that came with something like Gnarl Spirit or some of the other warbands we've seen succeed in the past is a lot of times that it doesn't feel like your opponent is outskilling you. It just feels like they're leaning on the power of their warband and the power of that warband is high enough that they can make mistakes, they can have less experience, they can, you know, take crazy risks and just have it pay off. And I, I think you're right. I think this is a team that you have to know very well. When you take the risks, they have to be calculated and you just can't pick them up and show up to an event. I mean, I've, I've shown up to locals, you know, one day, three round events. And I'm just like, hey man, I'm going to play Neural Spirit Pack for the first time. I'm going to play Crushes for the first time. Back when Crushes were really scary. And just be like, I'm going to bust out crushes for the very first time. Thanks for the glass. They're just really good right now. Sorry. And you absolutely cannot do that with this warband. You have to, when you win, it's going to feel like a deserved win. And I think that is really the high we're chasing. You know, we love getting glass. We love getting golden tickets. We love getting victories under our belt. Absolutely. But, but what we love more than that is earning that win. And I, I think, think this is a warband for them. Absolutely. I think some of the most memorable games I've ever had is when the game is won on a knife's edge. I mean, if we talk about Adepticon very recently, like I played some amazing opponents, but the games that are the ones that come to mind immediately without me even particularly wanting or thinking about searching for a particular game is the ones where it was like, damn, I barely won that. Whether my opponent knew that or not, you know, is another thing. But that's the most fun is like, I played to all my outs, I played to my wins, and I was able to take that dub. And I think you can do that with this warband. I mean, you can do that with any warband, but you can really flex that skill with this warband. So I'm really curious to see how people are going to take it. And then just holistically going over their strengths, right? Accurate, good objective deck. I mean, good deck overall. Interesting design and play, very thematic. Beautiful miniatures. I mean, what's, what's not to enjoy about it? And I get some people aren't into the chaos aesthetic. It's taken me a really long time to come around to it myself. But, you know, it's fun. And I'm, I'm kind of very curious to see how they perform, not only in the average player's hand, but in the upper echelons of competitive play as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Really looking forward to these guys and both playing as and against them. I, I think it's going to be really fun to set up on the table across from them as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be equally fun, as you mentioned, playing against them, like dismantling the strategy. Yeah, when your opponent provides you with a bunch of difficult, unanswerable questions, you will have to come up with the answers to those questions. And that's kind of how you beat Zinch in the first place. So I like yeah. it. Very thematic. Well done to Games Workshop. And again, thank you to Games Workshop for sending us this free preview copy. 
Zach, anything else you want to add before we close out the episode? Yeah, just thanks to, again, GW for sending us the reviews. And thanks to all our listeners. I mean, not just our patrons, who we love, but also everyone who just listens and supports and gives us feedback and stuff. It's always great to talk. We love talking about this game, obviously. We love hearing your feedback to our talking. Absolutely. And have to completely agree with that sentiment. It's nice to open up the Discord and see conversation. And it's nice to get people's thoughts and feedback. And, you know, while Zach and I may not necessarily be able to put in as much time as we used to in the past, I think we certainly just love being able to help anyone that we can in regards to tech building questions, comments, concerns, because we really want this game to grow. That would be awesome. Even if five years from now, I'm not playing Underworlds, which is unlikely, but could be a possibility. I would love to hear if there's like a hundred people at Adepticon playing World Underworlds, right? Like that would be awesome. So let's just keep growing this thing, staying consistent and staying involved. And we really appreciate you staying involved with us in turn. Absolutely. So once again, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join our current patrons, you can do so at patreon.com slash path of glory. You can find all of our blog content on pathtogloorypodcast.com, which will probably announce some updates to the blog in general in the near future. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, let us know on Facebook, Twitter, or Discord at Path Glory Podcast. It is a free Discord. It is for everyone to hang out and talk about the game. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Giving us a five-star review really helps the algorithm and spread us to other people. We have some lofty goals that we want to hit this year just in terms of reach. And as always, thanks for listening. And we wish you the best of luck on your path to glory.